This is Trey Johnson, and I'd like to thank you for taking the time to listen to this teaching. I pray that it empowers you, encourages you, and motivates you to know God and to be who He's created you to be. We're going to talk about hindrances to triumph. Okay, so we, we've ex- we, we realize God wants me to triumph. Then He wants me to stay in the Word. He wants me to stay in faith. He wants me to stay in fellowship, stay in joy. He wants me to stay strong. He wants me to develop a vision of triumph that I've got I've to see triumph in here before I experience triumph out here. So when I, when I ask you, what does it look like for triumph in your life spiritually? You've got to see it in here. What does it look like financially? What does it look like physically? We've got to see triumph before we experience triumph. And tonight we're going to talk about hindrances to triumph. So if you would look in your notes there, if you're watching, you can uh, turn in your Bible, Matthew chapter 14, verse 22 through 33. And you can see one of the hindrances to triumph is distractions. Say distractions. Now, Matthew 14, verse 22, then he directed the disciples to get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent away the crowds. And after he had dismissed the multitudes, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Now, notice this, the disciple and the crowds. Notice what happened to the disciples. He gave the disciples a directive. He dismissed the crowds. We've got to ask, am I considered a disciple or am I just part of the crowd? Because people that are a part of the crowd don't receive direct assignments from the master where a disciple, he knows when he speaks to you, you're going to do something about it. So I've got to ask and I've got to be real with myself. Am I just part of the crowd? Am I just going through the motions? You know how many churches gather and they're considered the crowds and after the church services, they are released and they go their way. But the disciples, he's talking to the disciples. Disciple comes from the same word as discipline. A disciplined one is a disciple. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 31, 32, he looks at the people. He says, I'm speaking to those who believe. He says, I'm looking for the one who will believe what I'm saying. And whenever you hear what I'm saying and you choose to believe it, you're going to know that truth and that truth is going to make you free. Disciples get specific direction. The crowd is released just to let go home. Am I a disciple or am I just a part of the crowd? Which one are you? Let's keep reading. And afterwards he dismissed the multitudes. He went up into the hills by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was still there alone. But the boat was by this time out on the sea, many furlongs. A furlong is one eighth of a mile distant from the land, beaten and tossed by the waves for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch between three and six of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they screamed out with fright. But instantly he spoke to them saying, take courage. I am. Stop being afraid. I want you to think about in whatever you're going through in life. If Jesus enters into your world, is he going to find you being afraid or is he going to find you strong in faith? 
They were afraid and Jesus told them, take courage, I am, stop being afraid. When Jesus enters into your world, who is he to you? When he says, I am, what does that mean to you? Remember in, in Matthew 16, whenever Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says, hey guys, who do men say that I, I am? And they said, well, one of, one of them says that you're John the Baptist. Another one says you're Elijah. Or another one says that you're one of the prophets. But Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, you need to know that flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you, but it's my father in heaven who has revealed that to you. And he goes on to say, Peter, upon this revelation of who I am, that I am the Christ, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. A church is not a religious term. The church is not a building. The church in this day and age is a governmental word and it means a disciple. It means a called out one. It means somebody who is going to position themselves in the presence of God and they're going to hear God's word and they're going to do God's word. That they are selected by God and they know they are selected by God and they are willing to do something with the gifts that God gave them. They're willing to do something with the vision God gave them. They're willing to do something with what God is speaking to their inner man. He says, this is the person the gates of hell will not prevail against them. Not the churchgoer. Which one are we? Are we a disciple or are we of the crowd? Are we truly the church re realizing that I'm called out and I'm going to position myself to hear and to do? Jesus entered and he says, take courage. I am. Stop being afraid. I am. Who is Jesus to you? Is he just savior to you? Is he healer to you? Is he blesser to you? Is he deliverer to you? Is he, who is he to you? Because a lot of people, he's just savior and that's great. He needs to be our savior. So we know that we're going to spend eternity with God, but there's so much more in our relationship with God. He is the I am. He wants to be a healer. He wants to be provider. He wants to be a direction giver. He wants to be the one leading us and guiding us and directing us. He wants to be the I am. I am whatever you need him to be. He says, take courage, I am, I am, I am. Whatever you're going through, he is saying, I am. Take courage, I am what you need me to be. So stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. And he goes on to say, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and he walked on water and he came towards Jesus. But when he perceived and felt the strong wind, he was frightened and he began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me from death. And instantly Jesus reached out his hand and caught him and held him saying, oh, of you little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased and those in the boat knelt and worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. Now I want to go back to the when, when Peter answered him, if it's you command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on water and he came towards Jesus. Now, listen, how does faith come? Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Did Peter hear the word of Jesus? 
The answer is yes, faith was there. When God tells us to do something, his ability is always present for us to do it. With God's word is God's ability for us to walk it out. When God says for, uh, he directs us in some form or fashion, when he told Peter to come, the ability to come was in the word. Whatever word God is saying, triumph is yours. The ability is in the word for triumph to manifest in our life. But what does it take? It takes faith. You can sit under the word of God. Faith can come. But if you don't act on it, the power of God is not activated to experience what God just promised you. But when you hear the word and faith rises and you act upon it, you begin to think about it. You begin to believe it. You begin to declare it. You begin to act upon it. You tap into the power of God and the ability of God is in us and on us for what God said to come to pass in our life. But we got to hear and we got to do. So Peter stepped out and he walked on the water. He did the impossible. Now remember what 2022 represents. The number 20 in the, in the Greek, the Hebrew language, it represents the open hand of God. It represents the mouth of God. It represents divine answers coming from heaven. It means specific boundaries. It means God reaching out his hand. 22 represents disorder, destruction, and chaos. Dr. Zavell, God told him, he says, in the midst of disorder, destruction, and chaos, I'm going to open my hand and I will provide supernaturally, extraordinary, unusually to those who aren't shaken by the disorder and chaos. And God is saying to you and I, triumph is yours. But in the midst of triumph, don't be shaken by the, don't, don't be shaken by the disorder and chaos. With what God is doing, don't be moved by what you see on, on, on TV, what you hear by other people. Don't be moved by what's going on in the world. Stay focused on him. When Peter stayed focused on him, he did the impossible. When Peter focused on the promise, he did what everybody else said he couldn't do. But when he looked at the wind, when he looked at the waves, when he perceived, perceived means to fill with your five physical senses. When he began to feel, he began to look, he began to listen, he began to let his mind rationalize that I should not be doing what I'm doing because it's impossible to walk on the water, he began to sink. And if we begin to watch more of what's going on in the world than, than, than we do of what God's saying in his word, we will begin to sink. You're a born again child of God. Don't you begin to look at yourself as average. You're not average. Do you hear me? You and I, we are not designed to go down. We are not designed to be in torment. We are not designed to be afraid. We are not designed to sink. We are designed to do the impossible. We are designed to walk in divine provision from God. We are designed to walk in relationship with Almighty God and experience right in the middle of disorder and chaos, God opening his hand to you and I and him providing unusually, supernaturally, and extraordinary. We are designed to walk in triumph. He always causes us to triumph. Not sometimes, always. Say it always. Always in every area of life. I don't know how it's going to come, but he promises I will always lead you in triumph. Now notice what he does right here. And he, he says he instantly when Peter began to sink, he reached out his hand, caught him. And he said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt God's promise? I've got to ask myself, in, in every area of my life, is there any area of Jesus were to enter my world? 
would he say, why did you have such little faith there, Trey? Why did you doubt? The word doubt comes from the same word as double. The word doubt means duo. It means to bounce back and forth. Look at James chapter 1, verse 6 through 8. Now we're talking about hindrances. So distraction, Peter got distracted. That's a hindrance. Say distractions are hindrances. Doubt is a hindrance. Now I want you to think. Let's think about our life. James chapter 1, verse 6. He says, only it must be in faith that he ask with no wavering, no hesitating, no doubting. Only it must be in faith that he asked with no hesitating, uh, no doubting, no wavering. Only it must be in faith that he asked with no wavering, no hesitating, no doubting. Where in our life could we be hesitating, doubting, or wavering? He goes on to say, for the one who wavers, hesitates, doubts, is like the billowing surd out at sea that is blown hither and thither and tossed by the wind. For truly let not such a person imagine that he will receive anything he asks for from the Lord. For being as he is, a man of two minds, hesitating, dubious, irresolute, he is unstable, unreliable, and uncertain about everything he thinks, feels, and decides. What is he saying? In the middle of disorder and chaos and destruction, if you are double-minded, if you're bouncing back and forth, God is saying, I want you to triumph. But then we look over here at the problem. We look at the circumstances. We look at what's against us and we're bouncing back and forth. He says, you're hesitating. He says, you're doubting. You're going back and forth, just like a wave. You're being blown here. You're being blown there. He says, don't expect to receive anything you're asking of from the Lord. But... When we ask in faith and we get to the point that we spend enough time in his word, we're renewing our mind to the truth that God is wanting me to triumph. He expects me to triumph. The ability of God is in me and on me to triumph. And we're fellowshipping with God and we're keeping it at the forefront of our thinking. No matter how intense the wind gets, no matter how intense the waves get, we stay focused. We are going to walk in what God has promised us to walk in. Say, that's me. But we've got to be real with ourselves. We've got to be real with ourselves. What area of my life do I need to flush out doubt? What area of my life am I hesitating? Go with me to Mark chapter 4. Let's look at uh, fear. Fear is a hindrance. Say fear is a hindrance. Mark chapter 4, verse 35, this is a, it, it seems like a similar story, but it's a total different account. Verse 35, it says, on the same day when the evening had come, Mark 4, 35, he said to the disciples, let us cross over to the other side. Now, when they had left the multitude, notice disciple multitude. What did he do to the multitude? He released them. What did he do to the disciple? He gave them specific instruction. Go to the other side. He didn't say, go to the other side, I hope you make it. He didn't say, go to the other side, I don't know, it could get pretty woolly out there. Are you right with God? Because I don't know what's going to happen here. 
No, no. He said, go to the other side. When God tells us to do something, remember his ability is in and on his word for us to do it and to do it in victory, no matter how intense the storm gets, no matter how intense the enemy gets, you and I, he always causes us to triumph, period. But we've got to settle it on the inside of us. This is my destiny. This is where I'm going to the other side. I don't care what I face. I'm going to the other side. I don't care how long it takes. I'm going to the other side. I don't care what other people say about me. I'm going to the other side. Why? Because I'm a disciple. You're a disciple. You're not wired to sink in the middle of your assignment. You have an assignment. You are created by God to, to, to go to the other side. Say it. Go to the other side. Don't you let people talk you out of going to the other side. Don't let you let that the devil talk you out of going to the other side. Go to the other side. Say it. Go to the other side. Are you a disciple or are you the multitude? It's a very serious question. A lot of times we read past stuff like that and we just think, oh, okay, disciple multitude. We know there's coming a day that we won't be able to look past that. Matthew 25, Jesus is talking about uh, whenever Jesus returns and, and the day of judgment. Listen, listen, it's very important. And he says, what's going to happen is Jesus is sitting upon his throne. He's going to gather nations, every nation. No person, no person will be exempt from this. And he says, I'm going to put the sheep on my right and I'm going to put the goats on my left. And you know what's funny about sheep and goats? They smell the same. A lot of them make the same noises. You know how many people are going to be surprised in church? This is very sobering. Because we all gather together and we all smell the same. And we all have the same Christianese, oh, bless the Lord, praise you. How are you doing? Oh, blessed and highly favored. All that stuff is fine and dandy, but are you a sheep or are you a goat? Because we can make all the sounds like a Christian person is supposed to make. We can, we can have all the, the rituals and we can have all, talk about hindrances. Matthew 15, 16 says, the tradition of men make the word of God of no effect. Your tradition can talk you out of walking in your destiny. Am I a disciple? Am I a multitude? Am I a goat? Or am I a sheep? Because he says to the ones who are his sheep, he says, come on in. He's going to st stick them to the right. Come on in and you're going to spend eternity with Almighty God. But to the sheep, he's going to stick them on the left and he's going to say, depart from me. You will spend eternity in hell that was created for the devil and all of his fallen demons. But I smelt like a goat my whole life. I smelt like a sheep my whole life. I even sounded like it. Bah! Are you a goat or are you a sheep? Do you know Jesus or are you playing with it? Let's keep going. That isn't my message, but very important thing to settle. Let us cross over to the other side. And now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. Pause. Now, now let's, let's get back into where we're going. We're talking about hindrances. 
And we're talking about the assignment that you have upon your life, I have upon my life. And he's saying, go to the other side. And notice whenever they went to the other side, it wasn't just about them. There were other boats with them. See, there are other people, represent the boats, connected to you going to the other side. So it's not just about you. Success is just about us. Significance is whenever we get beyond ourselves and we start thinking about other people that are around us. When we begin to help others become who they're created to be. So not only when you go to the other side, don't kid yourself, other people are affected by you going to the other side. So if you don't go to the other side, you are being very selfish. Because it's going to affect the other little boats that are connected to you. Go to the other side. Say it, go to the other side. The other little boats were also with him and a great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on a pillow and they awoke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now you talk about the picture of faith. Here Jesus gets into the boat. I mean, the waves are hitting the boat to the point that it's filling up with water and Jesus is asleep on the pillow. How could he be so calm? Because you know that there was movement. You know that he heard them. He heard the disciples out there, ah, you know, pull the rope, whatever they say out on a boat. I'm not much of a, a boatman, but you know that he had the opportunity, but he was just calm and peaceful. Why? Because he hadn't let the storm get in him. He was the picture of faith that right in the middle of destruction and chaos, he kept his wits about him. And the disciples started yelling, don't you care? Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care? See, this is a tactic of the devil. When you're going through something difficult, God, don't you care? Don't you care? God, how come I can't pay my bills? Don't you care? God, how come it's taking so long to receive my healing? Don't you care? God, how come they're doing that to me? Don't you care? The devil has been at this thousands of years, and he's always wanting us to question the character and nature of God. Don't you answer my prayers? Won't you help me? Won't you get me through this? He is a liar. The devil is a liar liar and he always wants to go against the character and nature of God. He always wants us to question whether God is going to show up or not. And we got to get to the point that no matter what, because God loves me, he is going to show up. Don't you care? Yeah, he does. He cares about me. Look at first Peter chapter five, verse seven. He says, casting the whole of your care, all your anxieties, all your worries, all your concerns, once and all on him, for he cares for you affectionately and cares about you watchfully. He cares about me affectionately and he cares about me watchfully. When the devil begins to lie to you, you might have gotten healed in your body 300 times and you notice something comes up and he says, not happening this time. He might have provided for you for years, but the devil will lie to you and say, not this time. I know not, not too long ago, there was a, just a financial thing that, man, we got to believe God for this financial thing over and over and over. And the, the devil was saying, not this time. God's not showing up this time. And Lord had me go back over the past six years and I calculated this and God had showed up 72 times 
concerning this certain thing financially. And I got my phone and I began to tell the devil, you hear me? 72 times God showed up in this one case, just one case. I could sit here all day and tell you, but do you see this devil? 72 times. He showed up the first time. He showed up the second time. He showed up the third time. And he's going to show up the 78th time, the 79th time, the 80th time. God is always faithful. He will always show up. He will always watch over his word to perform it. And what is God saying? I want you to triumph and I will always show up to help you triumph. I will always show up to take care of your kids. I will always show up to take care of your business. I will always show up. And God can show up that many times. The devil says, say, huh, well, he ain't showing up this time. Liar. You just open your mouth. You let him know you were a liar. And God will show up for me somehow, some way. I don't know how, but God's going to show up for me. Say it. God's going to show up for me. Now, let's go back to verse 39. Now, notice this. They settled it that God, God loves us. It's very important. Why will God answer your prayers? Because he loves you. 1 John 4, 18 says, there's no fear in love. When you settle it, not only do you love God, but God loves you. Why is God going to protect you? Because he loves you. Why is God going to help you? Because he loves us. Why is God going to heal our bodies? Because he loves us. But you've got to settle it. This isn't just to the multitudes. He loves everybody, but the ones who experience the love have it settled. If anybody's going to get uh, know God, it's going to be me. If anybody's going to experience the power of God, it's going to be me. God wants us to take ownership of our relationship with God. Are you with me? Now go back to verse 39, and he says, And he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now think about this. They told to go to the other side. Jesus goes in the boat. He's asleep. The wind gets to blowing. The waves get to rocking. The disciples freak out. Jesus, don't you care? They wake up Jesus. Jesus wakes up, and he rebukes the wind. And then he speaks to the sea, and there was a great calm. Verse 40, but he said, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Why are you so fearful? Why do you not have faith? Now notice Jesus, now this is very important because when the storms happen in life, a lot of times we want to just deal with the circumstances. We want to deal with what's right in front of us. But notice Jesus did not deal with the waves first. He went to the root of the problem, which was the wind. And he rebuked the root of the problem. He dealt with the root of the problem. And then he spoke to the fruit of the problem. He rebuked the wind that was stirring the waves, and then he spoke to the sea, peace, be still. But a lot of times we spend all of our energy talking and dealing with the fruit instead of dealing with the root who is trying to stop you, who is trying to hinder you, who is trying to hold you back from being everything God has called and created you to be. What God has promised you, this is past week, um, there was a... Um, uh, a situation, I'm trying to think of the name, what was the name of the, the people that were going to the house in Burleson? Uh, who? 
Yeah, the inspector. So he's having this inspectors coming to the house over at Burleson and everything. And it's a rental house and it's coming to inspect. And just one obstacle after the other, one obstacle after the other would come up. Just dumb stuff would happen over and over. And it was taking too long. And I was just thinking on this, how Jesus, how he rebuked, he took dominion and authority over the root of it instead of just letting the fruit of it get all of, all of the attention. So I called Heather and I said, this is enough. I mean, because this one thing would happen. It wouldn't, wasn't going through. Through, and I just begin to take dominion and authority over the root of the problem. It is the enemy that is stealing, killing, and destroying. It is the enemy that stirs up the storms to hold you back from getting to the other side, whatever God has promised you. We took dominion and authority over it. We commanded that inspector to be loosened to get there, and we got to the roping over there. Within 30 minutes, they texted on the phone and said, well, the inspector showed up. I could sit up here and tell you story after story of us speaking to storms. Justin and I, Tammy, we have stories. Jared, the list goes on and on. Of, of, but what about in the, in the here and now, are you just focusing on the fruit or are you dealing with the root? Because if a religious person would have interpreted this, this happening in Mark... When Jesus said, uh, go to the other side, whenever, whenever Jesus got up and he rebuked the wind and he commanded this sea, uh, sea to be still, if a religious person were, were documenting this, they would say, uh, Jesus said, don't try this at home because I'm the son of God. And you, you never know this storm could be from God and he could be trying to teach you something. No, we can always learn something, but God is not the author of the storm. How did Jesus, he got up with dominion and authority and he rebuked the storm because he knew who was behind the storm. If you don't know who's behind the storm, is this God? Is this the devil? Is this me? What is going on? You stay double-minded and he says, don't expect any person to, to receive whatever they're asking from the Lord. But when you know, see the word says Jesus only did what he saw the Father do. He only said what he heard the Father say. So he knew the storm was not from God. He knew that Satan was the one behind stirring up the storm so he took dominion and authority over the root of it and then he commanded the fruit of it to peace be still and then he looks at the disciples and he says why are y'all so fearful how come you don't have any faith see they had been with Jesus for years they had seen Jesus uh, they had heard Jesus's word they had heard the teaching and Jesus expected them to do something about the storm and he looked at them why are you so fearful and you have no faith. Think about two gauges here. If you looked in your heart, you have, uh, let's just say in this case, there's a fear gauge and there's a faith gauge. And he says, why are you so fearful? Your fear gauge is way up here and you have no faith. Your faith gauge is low. When he were to look in your heart, would he, what would he see on your gauges? Would he see your fear gauge pegged out and your faith gauge low? Or would he see your faith gauge over the top, spilling over, and your fear gauge low? Psalm 34, verse 4, he says, I sought the Lord and he heard me and he delivered me from all my fears. Not some of my fears, all my fears. See, there's a spirit of faith and there's a spirit of fear. It's a spirit and, it, and it's determined which one you're operating by, by what you're yielding to. So right here he said, why are you so fearful? Because they yielded to the storm. They yielded to their senses. 
and the spirit of fear. They operated in fear, whereas the spirit of faith, it also is determined by what you watch, what you hear, what you talk about. So the spirit of fear is determined by what you watch, what you hear, what you talk about, who you hang out with. The spirit of faith is determined by what you watch, what you hear, what you talk about, who you hang out with. Which one are you operating in more dominantly? Is it fear or faith? 2 Corinthians 4.13, it says, Yet we have the same spirit of faith as he, he had who wrote, I believed and therefore I have spoken. We too believe and therefore speak. So the spirit of faith believes God's word and it speaks God's word. Very important, the spirit of faith. Now listen, there's a difference between just learning about the topic of faith. When God's word goes forth, there's a degree of faith is there. But the spirit of faith is different. The spirit of faith, you can sense it. The spirit of faith, you can see it in their eyes. The spirit of faith, you can feel the weight of it. The spirit of faith is different. I know preachers all around the world that teach on the topic of faith, but don't have a lick of faith. They're saved and going to heaven, but there's a difference between just the knowledge of the Bible and walking in the Bible. There's a difference. The spirit of faith is caught. Yes, it's taught, but it's caught. It's when you spend enough time with it, thinking about it and getting it in your heart and you're talking about it and you're applying it and you're like, Peter, I'm going to step out on this word and it's going to become real to me. Not, it's not good enough that, that, you're, that, you're, that you're feels God. I want you to be my God. I want to know, I want to know God for me. I want what I read about in this Bible to show up in my life. How do I experience it? See, the spirit of faith is not going to sit on the back row. The spirit of faith is not going to dis, uh, it's not enough just to go to church. There's a spirit of faith and there's a spirit of fear. 2 Timothy 1, 7. He says, for God has not given me a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. God has not given me a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. Are you operating in your life from fear or faith? Are you yielding to fear or are you yielding to faith? Am I doing what I'm doing out of fear or faith? Faith is the only thing that pleases God, Hebrews eleven six. 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, but those who come to God must know that He is, and He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. So we've got to ask ourselves, am I operating in the spirit of fear or spirit of faith? As children of God, we are created by God to operate in faith. Fear is a hindrance to us walking in triumph. Doubt is a hindrance. Distractions are a hindrance. Fear is a hindrance. Say it. Fear is a hindrance. See, fear is Satan's currency. Has this country been operating in faith or fear the past two years? It's a spirit. And it's time for us as children of God, because we can't control what is happening around the world necessarily, but we can control what happens in our world. See, I can't control your relationship with God, but I do have a responsibility and I can control what happens in my sphere of influence. 
And you see, Satan wants a whole nation to be in fear. Why? Because God, listen to me, God cannot operate in fear. So I don't care if you're saved or you're not saved. If you're living and operating in a spirit of fear, God wants to show up, but he can't show up. God is not moved by need. God is not moved by your crying. God is not moved by the problem. He feels it. He's moved with the feelings of our infirmity, but he only is moved by faith. Only when we receive the word and we apply the word. Only when we hear the word and we do the word does God have the right to show up in our life. So when I say, am I being moved by fear or am I being moved by faith? I'm saying, am I going to allow God to show up or am I going to allow Satan to continue to show up? Why? whenever the next shot goes out well there'll be people lined up for blocks and miles the spirit of fear why when you went to the grocery store was it wiped out the spirit of fear the whole country has been operating under the spirit of fear why because Satan's plan comes to pass through fear and it hinders God's plan from coming to pass numbers 13 look at this 32 33 so they brought the Israelites an evil report of the land, which they scouted out, saying, The land through which we went to spot out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the Nephilim, or giants, the sons of Anak, who come from the giants, and we were in our own sights as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sights. Notice, they came back, they all saw the same thing. Twelve spies were sent into the promised land that God had promised them. Ten of them came back and said, there's no way. There's no way that we can do what God is saying. And two of them said, we are well able. See, fear, and then the sad thing is, the whole nation, two million people listened to the ten. Only two people, think of this, out of two million went to the promised land. It didn't matter how much money they had. It didn't matter who their family was. It didn't matter their skin color. It didn't matter. If they were in faith is the only reason they got to go to the promised land. And two million did not go. Why? Because they were afraid. Fear or faith? Disciple, multitude. Sheep, goat. Churchgoer or a doer of God's word? We've got to ask, which one am I? Which one am I? Remember the teaching I did a while back on are you an amateur or are you a professional? You remember that teaching? If you didn't hear that teaching, it's a, it's a game changer. Because a lot of times we come to church, and if I was a monkey up here, it's like they got, let's just throw peanuts on the stage and we'll watch the monkey dance, see what he got this Sunday, see what he got this week. And that's our mentality, go through church on the way to lunch. We're going to make ourselves feel better, so we just get real religious and we come together and not do anything. Those days are over. You realize that, right? They're over. I have to make a decision. I'm going to hear God's word and I'm going to do God's word. I'm going to summarize some of this, uh, to, but, but I just want to give you, I want you to finish strong with me here, okay? We got one time a month. And we'll sit and we'll watch programs for hours that have no eternal value. And whenever the preacher gets going a little bit long, we get a little restless, a little frustrated. Say, not me. 
Finish strong here with me, okay? Hindrances. Doubt is a hindrance. Fear is a hindrance. Double-mindedness. It's a hindrance. Say it's a hindrance. Now, if this is you right here, you just look straight ahead, okay? Complaining, griping, and grumbling are big hindrances. Definition of hinder. To keep back, restrain, get in the way of, prevent, stop, make difficult, impede, frustrate. What are hindrances to triumph? Complaining, griping, mummering are hindrances. Say they're hindrances. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, 6, 9, 10, 11. Listen to this. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with the great majority of them, for they were overthrown and strewn down along the ground in the wilderness. This, I put this in your notes, this was not triumph. Now these things are examples, warnings, admonitions for us not to desire, crave, or covet, or lust after evil and carnal things as they did. We should not tempt the Lord, try His patience, become trial to Him, critically appraise Him and exploit His goodness as some of them did and were killed by poisonous serpents nor discontentedly complain as some of them did and were put out of the way entirely by the destroyer of death. Now these things befell... These things befell them by way of a figure as an example and a warning to us. They were written to admonish and fit us for right action by good instruction. We in whose days the ages have reached their climax, their consummation. And I, I just want you to see what takes place here. And you can look at those notes in your own time. It was an 11-day journey. I want you to picture this. God delivers the children of Israel from 430 years of bondage from Egypt. They were slaves. Once God delivered them, it was supposed to be an 11-day journey to go from deliverance to the promised land. What God had promised them, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of plenty, a land of abundance. God's desire, they come out of Egypt, they come into a place of relationship with God, and they begin to learn the way God thinks, and they begin to get God's heart. And God's desire was that they change their image from slaves to warriors, from slaves to children of God, from slaves to people who possess the promises. An 11-day journey, that was God's plan. But the Bible says it took them 40 years. And in the 40 years, only two out of the millions made it. Not God's plan. And on the journey, I want you to see the cycle and I want you to think about our life. Remember, griping, complaining, murmuring, they're hindrances to you and I walking in triumph. So here they get delivered. They're, woo, God is so awesome. God is so powerful. They're celebrating. They're out there and they're headed to the promised land. And they get and they hit the Red Sea and the Red Sea's in front of them and they look back and Pharaoh decided it was not such a good idea. They just lost all of their labor, so we're going to come after them. So they have the Red Sea in front of them. They have all Pharaoh's army behind them. They're feeling the pressure. Say pressure. See, it's the pressure of the process that always separates the committed from the uncommitted. The pressure of the process. Pressure comes in life. But it's pressure that separates the people who say, oh, I love you when everything's good. The pressure of the process separates the committed from the uncommitted. A committed person says whether it's good or not, I'm in. Whether I have an abundance or I have nothing, I'm in. Whether it works out the way I think it should, I'm in. Say it, I'm in. 
And so here they are, they get delivered, and all of a sudden, Red Sea's in front, pressure's coming, they're feeling Pharaoh coming, they're seeing the army coming, and now they start complaining. Say it, complaining. And Moses, this is where Moses tries to be real religious. He says, stand still and see the salvation of God. And God interrupts Moses, and he says, hey, Mo, right now is not a good time to stand still. <laughs> And so he instructed him, and Moses lifted up his rod. God parted the Red Sea. The children of Israel go through on dry ground, get to the other side. God releases the water and destroys the enemy. And now the children of Israel, who they were celebrating, pressure came, they complained. God in his mercy delivered them. They get to the other side. They see the dead bodies. They're celebrating. They're worshiping. Then... Three days later, they're out in the wilderness and they approach this body of water. Three days since they'd seen God part the Red Sea and destroy the enemy. Three days. Don't you think that would make an impact on us? To see the Red Sea part? Three days later, say it, three days. They come up on this body of water and the water's bitter. Well, they start doing pressure came. Now they start complaining. Moses, why did you bring us out here? There wasn't enough graves in Egypt. Did you bring us out here to die complaining, but God in his mercy shows Moses a tree. He says, grab a stick, stick it in the water. He turns the bitter water into sweet water. And then all the people are happy again. Oh, praise you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Praise you. So notice praise, pressure, complain, God's mercy. Praise, pressure, complain, God's mercy. Then they, they leave there and they go on and now uh, they're hungry. And they start gripping and complaining. They've seen the Red Sea part. They've seen the bitter water made sweet. And you'd think that would make an impact. Don't you think it would make an impact? But oh no, they get hungry and they start complaining, say complaining. And they start griping. They've lost their focus instead of focusing on how powerful God is and how good God is and how God can, no matter what happens, He's going to show up. They start complaining, say complaining. And now they're hungry pressure comes they start complaining God in his mercy now he starts raining down quail and manna out of heaven they start praising and celebrating again because God is so good and God is so faithful and then they leave there and now they're thirsty again and what do you what do you guess they start doing complaining <laughs> So God in his mercy tells Moses, Moses, strike the rock. Water starts coming out of the rock, feeds the millions of people. Millions of people and their animals drink because God in his mercy. And then you keep going. This is at Exodus 13, Exodus 14, 15, 16. Now you're in numbers and now they start complaining and griping against Moses again. And the Bible says, and God was not pleased. See, there comes a time that you and I have got to grow up. Because when we're just starting our journey, we can complain and we can gripe and we can moan and we can pray some off-the-wall prayers. And God in His mercy, say it, God in His mercy, He shows up. And then we're so excited, but then we forget and we complain and gripe and moan. And I don't have this and I don't have that. And God spared your life and you forgot that you're not even supposed to be breathing, but you're still alive because God in His mercy. But you're griping and complaining about what you don't have instead of who you do have and you're no longer going to hell but now you're going to heaven and you once were lost but now you're found you once were blind but now you see but you're complaining and griping and moaning and God in his mercy but there comes a time that God says I need you to grow up 
I need you to quit griping and complaining and trust me. See, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11. So before I go on, I want you to pause. Are you at that place that maybe you've griped and complained for all these years, but it is time to get a hold to yourself and grow up? 1 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul says, When I was a child, I thought like a child. Stay with me. Stay with me. Don't disengage. We're here for a reason. We're here for a purpose. We're removing hindrances so we can walk in triumph. How many people want to walk in triumph? Then you've got to be serious about it. You can't have a mindset of an amateur. You can't have a mindset of just a churchgoer. You can't have a, a mindset, I'm just going to make myself feel better to go to church and God's a lucky rabbit's foot and God's a genie in a bottle. And maybe if I show up and go to church, he'll show up and he'll displace me. No, no, we got to change. Paul says, when I was a child, I thought like a child. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. When I was a child, I acted like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish things behind me. You want to walk in triumph? Quit your griping, complaining, remove the doubt, remove the fear, remove the unbelief, and make a decision just today. Because sometimes it can be so overwhelming. You feel the power of the waves hitting your face. You feel the wind hitting your face. But you make a decision. I don't care how much intensity I go through. I will not back off. I will not quit. I will get to the other side and take dominion and authority over the root of the thing and speak peace to the fruit of the thing and let God go before you. Let God super come upon your natural. See, griping and complaining. Murmuring is a hindrance. You can go back and look at your notes in your own time. Two more and we're going to be done here. Another hindrance is unforgiveness. Say it, unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. Matthew chapter 6. How many of you want to be forgiven? Come on, finish strong with me here tonight. How many of you want to be forgiven? Okay, verse 12, 14. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. How many of you want to be forgiven? Okay, five of you. The rest of you, just stick in here. You'll get where you want to be forgiven. It's a good thing to be forgiven. <laughs> Verse 15, But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I'm going to read that again because we're having so much fun. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Matthew 18, verse 21 and 22. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. In Luke chapter 17, the same account, he says 490 times of the same sin in the same day. And then the disciples said, okay, Lord, you're going to have to increase our faith because I, this is this Johnson paraphrase here. <laughs> I just will take the guy out as I would forgive him. And you're saying 490 times of the same sin in the same day. Once again, let's see how many of you want to be forgiven. See, we can't walk in forgiveness just in our flesh. Galatians chapter 5 verse 6 says, faith works by love. 
This isn't in your notes. You can write it down if you're taking notes. Romans 5, 5 says the love of God is shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit. Because we're asking, okay, how? How do I walk in forgiveness? How do I walk in love when I just as well take them out as I would forgive them? This is where we got to tap into the love of God. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. It says the love of God pays no attention to a suffered wrong. But you know what the devil does? Revelation chapter 12, it says he's the accuser of the brethren. And he will bring up what that person said about you. It's like a Polaroid picture. And he carries around this album. And he'll just see, all right, how you doing? And he's flipping. It's just like he flips through these pictures of what this person said to you and what this person did to you and how they lied to you and how they stole from you and how they cheated on you and how they stabbed you in the back and how they're continuing. And the devil will hold up this picture and he'll remind you. He's very good. He's very persistent. And he'll try to remind you until you take your place as a child of God and and you rip up the Polaroid and you let him know I am forgiven and they are forgiven. I have been forgiven. I am cleansed and I release them. And if there's times you need to take communion every single day to help you forgive and to help you love and to help you tap into the power of God, you do what you have to do to walk in the love of God. You've got to make a decision. Devil, you cannot have my heart. I know right now I'm ticked. I know right now I want to just mow them down. I know right now I don't want to pray for for their healing. I hope they die. I'm just saying what you've thought before. <laughs> and that's where you say, God, I need your help. I need your help. I can't do this on my own. And you get in there and you start just declaring, I forgive them. I forgive them. I forgive them. I forgive them. I forgive them 490 times of the same sin in the same day. Mark chapter 11, verse 24-26. It says, Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, Jesus is expecting us to pray. You know that's a good thing. Prayer is a good thing. If you haven't prayed before, I, I just encourage you to try it. It really is. It's good for us, all right? So when we stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. How many believe that Jesus tells the truth? How many believe Jesus is the truth? Who's talking here? Jesus. And you just said that He is truth. If you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. How many of you want to be forgiven? Unforgiveness is a hindrance to walking in the promises of God. I encourage you to start forgiving people when you get up and start forgiving people when you go to bed. I encourage you to just throughout the day you choose to forgive them. I forgive them. Every time they come up in your mind, I forgive them. I release them. I let them go. Unforgiveness is a hindrance, and the last one for now is offense is a hindrance. And I'm not talking offense like you have around your property. I'm talking about being offended. Mark chapter 4, verse 16 through 17, In the same way the ones sown upon the stony ground are those who, when they hear the word, at once receive, accept, welcome it with joy. And they have no real root in themselves. And so they endure for a little while. How many of you want to endure for a little while or for a long while? 
I'm in it for a long while. They endure for a little while when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word. When trouble or persecution arises on account of the word. When problems arise on account of the word, why would the enemy, just like the enemy being behind the storm, the wind, the waves trying to stop them from going to the other side, the storm was, rose up to stop the word. Storms in life come not because God's trying to teach you a lesson. Storms of life come to st steal the word, to get you to question the character and nature of God, to get you to question whether God is going to answer your prayers, to get you to question whether God's going to meet your needs, to get you to question whether God's going to heal your body. So they receive the word and they are excited. God wants me to triumph. And wow, they're so excited. And they have joy for a little while. Because when the problem comes and the persecution comes and the storm rises up, notice what he says. Immediately they are offended. They become displeased, indignant, resentful, and they stumble and they fall away. Are you offended? Because most of the time people know deep down that they're offended, but they don't like admitting that they're offended. Off ended. When you are offended, you get off the course that God has for your life and you end the process. Off-ended. And a lot of times, listen, this is what we do as people. We feel like we have a right to hold on to our unforgiveness. We have a right to hold on to our bitterness. We have a right to be offended because you don't know what they did for me. How's that working for you? Jesus said, if you do not forgive... Except you, Trey, because you're really special. That isn't what he says. But that's what we live with our life. I have a right because they lied. I have a right because they hurt me. I have a right to hold on to my offense. Oh, we're having fun, aren't we? Immediately they are offended and become displeased and indignant and resentful and they stumble and fall away. See, we've got to get to the point where we desire freedom, we desire truth, we desire victory more than we want our right to be offended and to hold on to unforgiveness. Proverbs 18, verse 19, a brother offended, listen to this, a brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. And contentions are like the bars of a castle. Somebody that gets offended, you know what happens if you don't deal with that offense? Your heart gets harder and harder and harder and harder and harder. And the word says that a person that is offended, it is easier to win a strong city than a person that is offended. And the contentions, contentions means disagreement. In other words, they disagree with everybody and a bar goes up on the castle. And they disagree with you and a bar goes up on the castle. And they disagree with you and the bar goes up on the castle and they disagree with God and the bar goes up on the castle until they have so much disagreement in their life that they're sitting in the middle of a jail cell and they're blaming everybody else and they're the ones that were behind bars. You've heard me tell the story of them hunting um, monkeys in Africa, right? They're hunting monkeys in Africa and what they do is they stick a coconut inside this cage and they wait on the monkeys. 
This is like what offense is, a, is like, unforgiveness is like. And so the monkeys show up there and they stick their hand in there and they grab the coconut. And they're trying to pull the coconut because the bars are smaller than the coconut. And they're trying to pull the coconut out. And all they have to do is let go of the coconut to get their hand out. But they feel like they want to hang on to the coconut until the hunters come up and boom, knock them on the head. And all they had to do is let go of the coconut. And that's what you and I are like when we sit there. Well, they hurt me. We're like the monkey hanging on to the coat. They lied. They stole. They cheated. They did this. And whop! The devil hits you on the head. And all you got to do is let go of the coconut. Look at your neighbor and say, let go of the coconut. This is the last scripture for tonight. And this is a game changer. Psalms 119, 165. Great peace have they who love your law, and nothing shall offend them or make them stumble. I encourage you to get this deep in your heart. Great peace have they who love your law and nothing shall offend them or make them stumble. In other words, I love the truth and I do not get offended. Jesus said in the last days, many, many, say it many, many offenses will come. Anybody ever been offended? If you've breathed longer than 10 seconds, you've had the opportunity to get offended. But it says, I'm going to love the truth more than I'm going to hang on to my offense. I'm going to love truth. I love truth. This, we echo this throughout our house. I love the truth and I do not get offended. I love the truth and I do not get offended. I love the truth and I do not get offended. I love the truth and I do not get offended. Try it. I love the truth. And I do not get offended. So what hindrances could be holding us back from experiencing triumph? Offense? Unforgiveness? Complaining? Griping? Murmuring? Doubt? Fear? Distractions? Which one do you need to let go of tonight? Which ones do you need to repent of tonight? I want us to pray, and, and whichever hindrance you need to, to get rid of tonight, I want you to get rid of it. Let's put it under the blood of Jesus, and whenever we leave here, we're going to leave with our eyes focused going forward, expecting God's open hand in our life, expecting triumph in our life, expecting to go to the other side. Say it, go to the other side. Let's pray. Father, we just open our hearts up to you. And Holy Spirit, we welcome you and we ask you to show us areas of our life, if there's fear, that we, we just unplug the fear gauge and we start increasing our faith gauge. We start hearing your word on every area of our life, on triumph, on victory, on, on whatever it is. If it's doubt, if it's unbelief, if it's being distracted, we ask you to forgive us. Say it, Father, forgive me for being distracted, for being afraid, for being full of worry, fear, concern. I cast it over on you and you care for me. You care for me. And Father, I ask you to forgive me for complaining, for griping, for murmuring, and I receive your forgiveness. And Holy Spirit, I ask you to help me to forgive whoever I need to forgive. And I release them.
I let them go. And I let go of offense. And I let go of hurt. And I let go of bitterness and pain in the name of Jesus. And it, uh, somebody watching, whenever you let go of the unforgiveness, I just saw a tumor on the inside of you. That thing just dissipated. And I expect the doctor's report. I expect confirmation on that because there's freedom in unforgiveness. Now look up here at me. If you truly believe that you receive God's forgiveness... What do you say when you receive something from somebody? Thank you. Do you truly believe that his blood has cleansed you and washes you? And the fear is gone. The doubt is gone. The unbelief is gone. The griping, the complaining is gone. The offense, the unforgiveness is gone. And we receive the cleansing power of the blood. But then now it's up to me, it's up to you that from this point forward, when I feel the pressure, instead of griping and complaining, I'm going to look at what is going right. I'm going to look at what I do have instead of what I don't have. I'm going to look at, the, instead of looking at the hand that has an opportunity, I'm going to look at the hand that's working. I'm to praise God for the eyes that work, the ears that work. I want to praise God for my kids. I want to find good things to praise God about. Fear tries to come. Uh-uh. I want you to say this with me. I'm going to resist it. So I'm going to resist it. And then I'm going to replace. When fear comes, you resist fear and you replace it with faith. Resist fear, replace it with faith. Resist fear, replace it with faith. How do you replace it with faith? Faith comes by hearing whatever area you're being attacked with fear on, you get God's promises and begin to hear it and declare it and ask yourself, what does it look like for me to be a doer of this in this area? And courage will increase. Faith will increase. Every time you act on the Word of God, courage expands. Faith expands. Expands. Every time I don't act upon the Word of God, courage decreases. Fear increases. Remember the gauges? Is your gauge going to be full of fear or is it going to be full of faith? Because when I have it full of faith, there's no room for fear. Give Him no place. Amen? Did you get something out of the Word tonight? If you didn't, you really weren't here.